Hey, hello there again, kiddos. It is uh, the same night at work for me that I read to you last night. It's actually Tuesday morning. I'm going to get a little jump on the next chunk of reading we're going to do, starting with chapter 10. So, where did we leave off? Let's review here. Um, Leona is getting lessons from Aloysius, who used to be Mago Ray's apprentice. Mago Ray told one of the Cellini to go take a hike when he was coming around looking for uh, Leona. And Leona finds herself looking out the window down into the streets and she gets some more information about the Cellini's hunt for her. Turns out that if they don't find the girl that they're looking for, they may be able to um, invoke another clause of the contract that allows them to take the life of her father. So she's very, very disturbed and upset and she doesn't mention anything to Aloysius. Um, but Aloysius might be a little bit suspicious because he asks her if something is on her, on her mind and she doesn't give in. She doesn't mention what's going on. So anyways, she's happy to be alive. And... She's still upset with her father's contract for her life in exchange for saving the Cellini saving her bigger brother's life. But anyways, the more pressing thing for her right now is what? She's been there a total of nine days. She's studied and learned, and now she's going to go take a test. So at the end of chapter nine, we pick up here. On the ninth day, I get my chance. After finishing our morning lesson out in the courtyard, Aloysius nods approvingly. You seem ready. Let's go see what Mago Ray thinks, shall we? Chapter 10 We walk to Mago Ray's study in silence. My heart is trying to force a way out between my ribs, a painful exercise that renders me incapable of conversation. Not that I have anything worthwhile to say. This is a test. I cannot fail. I run through the list of spells I've memorized and then repeat them again. My fingers twist the strings on my shirt into balls. The stone ogre glares down at me from his perch above the study as if he wants me to fail. A shiver runs up my spine. Aloysius knocks gently on the door and lets us in. Mago Ray is seated at his desk, writing furiously. The quill scratches so loudly it sets my teeth on edge. He doesn't acknowledge our arrival, and I hover behind Aloysius like a forgotten buoy in a harbor. The rose bush continues to climb the wrong direction up the trellis, producing only a few lackluster buds. I tilt my head to see the titles of the leather-bound books around me, 
but the spines are all blank. You brought the mongrel, Race says at last. Aloysius is unfazed. Leo has been working hard. He's a quick learner. I was under the impression I'd hired a gardener, Ray replies. He glances up at me with a cold stare. I haven't noticed my plants thriving under your tender care. You haven't given me any time, I say. I should be pruning the boxwoods instead of organizing rooms no one ever enters. I wonder if you're up to the task of assistant if you're this bad at managing your time. Let's not get distracted, Aloysius says, but I step around him, my hands on my hips. I know how to fix regular plant problems. I could do those in a heartbeat, but I need time to learn all the ridiculous spells you've inflicted on your shrubs before I can undo them. Mago Ray grins like a dog baring its teeth. You think I'm torturing my plants? Aloysius shakes his head. This isn't why we're here. Look at that rose bush. I point at the plant strung up on the trellis. I can practically hear it groaning. Perhaps we can discuss plants some other time, Aloysius practically shouts. Mago Ray and I regard each other warily, a truce forged from our mutual respect for Aloysius. The peace seems tender, tenuous at best, but I'll be civil if Ray will. Excellent. Aloysius glances at me. He's waiting for something, but what? Am I supposed to put on some sort of performance? Was there something he asked me to recite that I've forgotten? I stare back, attempting to convey my confusion with the pointed look. Not an impressive start, Mago Ray says with a smirk. I clench my teeth. Aloysius winces. I'm sorry, Leo, I forgot to tell you. He leans in and whispers into my ear. I grimace, but manage to perform a satisfactory bow. It is my sincere and honorable desire and request to be tested by the great Mago Ray. There's more, Ray says, delighted. Aloysius sighs and delivers the second half of the message. I stare at him, mystified. Surely he just... He shrugs in response. I clench my hands into fists. If I succeed, I hereby bind myself under no less penalty than that of death to aid him in the protection of Venice, to safeguard his secrets, and, and to make him tea whenever he wishes. It's not as binding as it sounds, Aloysius says in a low voice. Mago Ray leans back in his chair. Why not? His eyes are half closed as if he might fall asleep from boredom. Aloysius steps away from me and leans against a bookcase. 
I twist my shirt strings and stare at an ink station on Ray's desk. The room is quiet, the air still, as if it too is waiting. Ray reaches into the robes of his cloak and pulls out a piece of paper no bigger than his hand. Gentlemen are advised to wear gloves. I remember that rule from my studies, although it's unsurprising that Ray would ignore it. He is certainly not a gentleman. His voice is barely above a whisper. It's Latin, but I can't make out the words. The paper catches fire immediately, shriveling in on itself, and from the flame, a green rope appears. The magician flicks his fingers in a quick practice gesture, and the rope snakes its way back, snakes its way onto the desk. I watch it carefully. There are many green stringy spells, but the way it moves, but the way it moves next will determine my answer. The snake wraps around a piece of paper and buds shoot from its body. Lengthening spell, I say quickly. Sure enough, the paper shivers and stretches, pulling away until it tears its tears in half. I don't like the gleam in Mago Ray's eye. Tolerable, but you could have identified it the moment it emerged. He holds up his little finger. Lengthening spells are always this wide. I press my lips together in frustration. Just yesterday I'd written that in my notes and laughed as I remembered the lengthening spell that Portia Loridan brought, bought so that her golden curls would stretch to her waist. The effect was lovely, but it only lasted two days before she had it removed, complaining of a constant headache. I should have remembered that. I still recognized it before the spell took effect. Only barely. What if I were in a duel? What if you didn't recognize it until it was wrapped around me in sprouting tentacles? He holds up the two jagged pieces of the paper. Until there, until there were two Mago Rays. And not a clean cut either. That might be an improvement. Try another one, Bastain, Aloysius says. It's strange to hear Ray called by his first name, let alone a nickname. Sebastian Ray. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me reread that again. Try another one, Bastion, Aloysius says. It's strange to hear Ray called by his first name, let alone a nickname, Sebastian Ray. He's less intimidating with a first name. I clear my head and prepare for the next test. This one is easy. As soon as the mud-colored web emerges from the flame, I call it out. Fortification spell. And what does it do? It fortifies, keeps things in place, I say. The spell glides like a flying spiderweb across his desk. 
Ray closes his hand into a fist and ashes bleed between his fingers. What type of things? Buildings? All the buildings in Venice. The web hasn't landed yet. It floats across the floor toward me. Anything else? Well, you're rosebush, but not very well. The spell reaches my legs and wraps around them tightly. I sway unsteadily. Mago Ray gives me another feral grin. And people, quite well. I glance at Aloysius. He has the same resigned expression as my nursemaid when I misbehaved. Excellent! Mago Ray claps his hands together in glee. Another one! He pulls a fresh paper from his robes. Aren't you going to remove the fortification spell? I ask. How about if you get the next three correct? The magician says and mutters rapidly. A red square unfolds from the flame until it's the size of my face. <clears throat> Excuse me. Barrier spell, I say. Clearly, idiot, but what kind? The spell floats across the room, and I catch the undulating waves passing through it. Subaqueous. Oh, no, please don't. I say just before the square hits me directly in the face. I gasp as water washes across my skin, or at least the feeling of water. The square hovers on my shoulders, and my head bobs back and forth like a ship in the waves. The magician slaps his knee in delight. Excellent! His voice is distant and quavering. My hands are pinned against my sides, wrapped in clay webbing. The fortification spell is growing. Mago Ray practically sings. Aloysius heaves a sigh. I try to ignore the sound of waves lapping around my ears as I concentrate on Ray's movements. The next spell is the pale pink of a peach and shaped like a thimble. It's an uncommon spell, but I studied it last night and even dreamed about it. Buffing spell used by stable hands to polish saddles, I say. The thimble travels to the book on the desk and rubs itself against the leather. Ray's eyebrows raise. He seems disappointed by my success. Here's a fun one. I don't like his tone. His thin fingers snake into his robe and pull out another paper. With his right hand, he holds the spell while he speaks, and with his left, he makes a few rapid gestures. A purple thread drifts from the tip of the flame before leaping across the room. Modus, movement of an object. My voice is thick and shaky. Mago Ray's smile stretches almost to his ears. Yes, but what is it going to move? And where? The what is easy. The thread yanks a book from one of the shelves. As the heavy tome hurtles across the room, I guess the answer to the second question. 
Oh, Bastion, Aloysius shouts. The book hits me in the chest and I fall helplessly backwards, my arms still trapped at my sides. At the last second, I pull my head forward so the force of the carpeted floor hits my spine and not my skull. I gasp as air bursts from my lungs. Black dots dance across my vision. I lie still, coughing weakly. He'll do, Mago remarks. I need more things to laugh at around here. Naturally, at this very moment, someone knocks on the door. I try to rise, but I can hardly wriggle, let alone sit up. Enter! Mago raised voices, downright jovial. Your front door told us to let ourselves in. A black robe brushes by without pausing, followed by another set of legs clothed in brown trousers. The trousers stop, and a concerned face looks down at me. It's the magician's assistant who came to my birthday gala and looked so disgusted by it all. From upside down, his freckles seem even more prominent. They are the same reddish-brown as his hair. His eyes are dark green. I would like him to cease his scrutiny before he recognizes me, although he's probably too busy enjoying the spectacle I'm making. Trust up in spells, my head bobbing back and forth. No wonder he's grinning. Mago Vittori, Ray says. An unwelcome surprise. I didn't know the front door spell still worked, Aloysius said. Vittori's assistant gives me a sympathetic nod and walks past me into the room. What the door actually said was, If you must enter, watch for the hungry hidden ones, Vittori says. It gets temperamental on hot days. Ray concedes. Don't we all? Leo, Ray barks. I expend a great deal of effort to lift my head up so that I can see him. I hadn't realized he knew my name. What spell did I put on the front door to make it speak when someone knocks? Animatio. I can barely force the words out. My cheeks are extraordinarily heavy. What color and shape? Brown, diamond. So, the rumors are true, Vittori says. You hired an assistant. The muscles in my neck burn, and I lay my head back down on the carpet. Why is he on the floor? Vittori's assistant asks. He's in sort of a trial period. I thought you swore off assistance for good after... If I wanted your opinion on my personal choices, I would have asked, Ray tells the boy. Master, Aloysius's voice is soft but firm. Leo and I have more work to do today. Mago Ray sighs, pulls out another paper and mutters something under his breath. The subaqueous spell dissipates, and I can hear properly again. 
A moment later, the clay webbing shrinks to the size of a spider and scurries away, taking the remaining strands of my dignity along with it. I calmly rise to my feet, as if lying bound on the floor is neither unusual nor embarrassing. Vittori's assistant raises his eyebrows, and a smile twitches on his lips. I am supremely aware of my unevenly chopped hair and the dirt on my face. Both magicians have forgotten me. Maga Vittori has produced a book from the folds of his robe, which he and Ray are bent over eagerly. Aloysius touches my elbow. Let's go. I give a quick bow to Mago Ray's back, then follow Aloysius out of the room. I'm sorry about that, he says once we've climbed to the grand staircase and turned two corners. But he said I'll do, I reply. Yes. He'll take me on as his assistant? If that is what you want. Why wouldn't it be? I stop and Aloysius turns to face me. Today, he looks older. The crow's feet around his eyes stretch tight as if he's squinting into the sun. Now you know what he's like, he says. Now, I'm not afraid of his temper. Good. You shouldn't be. It's only he hesitates, his eyes roving the vine-colored wall as if he's looking for the right words. In a few years, when you've lost the sight, the problems you're running from will still be out there waiting for you. Maybe I'll be more prepared to face them. Or maybe I'll be miles away in Florence or Bologna, free from the cages that have imprisoned me my, my entire life, free from the patricians and monsters alike. Aloysius nods. I've enjoyed your company, Leo, but I need you to be sure. Why did you stay? I ask, suddenly bold. Perhaps he'll finally reveal his secret. That he's a prisoner, too, trapped here by some invisible spell or forced to fulfill an unbreakable oath. He turned as if he's going to walk away without answering. Then he calls out over his shoulder. I stay because Mago Ray needs me. I have to run to catch up with him. Chapter 11 Aloysius brings our midday meal to the library as usual. Pork belly pie, warm bread, olives, and honey. There's always honey. He must have noticed that I scraped the jar clean. Normally we spend our time asking questions that the other sidesteps, but today we eat in silence. Aloysius's brows are knit together, and he prods at the pie with his fork. I am thinking of Venice. Despite my eagerness to leave, I know I will miss it. In truth, sequestered in Ray's house these past nine days, I already miss so much, 
the bobbing boats in the harbor, the heavy smell of father's storeroom, the torchlight and masks of carnival. Tonight is the first night of celebrations I'd almost forgotten in all the upheaval. Sometimes when we have lessons in the courtyard and the vibrant sounds from the nearby square float over the brick stone walls, longing swells up in my chest like a billowing sail. I meet Aloysius's eyes. I think he's been studying me for a while. His lips pursed together thoughtfully. He slides a handful of coins across the table. There's a tavern off Campo San Paulo called the Lion and Spear. It's where the other magician's assistants gather. Why don't you take the afternoon off and visit? You're bound to run into one or two of them. I stare at the coins between us. As kind as Aloysius is, I can't help but wonder if this is some sort of test. I haven't finished sorting the lavender room. There are mounds of clutter that I'm somehow supposed to organize and arrange on the shelves. And didn't Mago Ray say I have to wipe every window on the second floor? I doubt our many guests will notice if the windows are dirty. You can get to the inn on foot from the, from the Rialto Bridge. He taps the money. This is for a meal and ale if you really want to make friends with the boys. Go on. He pushes the pile closer. Consider this your first week's pay. Thank you. I slip the coins into my pocket and stand up. Really, thank you for all your help. Aloysius smiles. You've done remarkably well. Oh, he pulls, a, he pulls a bundle from a basket and hands it to me. What's this? I unroll the cloth and hold up a dark brown cloak, finely stitched with a large hood. I thought it might be useful. It's exactly what I needed. I'm not sure what else to say. The gift comes so quickly on the hills of my suspicions that I have trouble meeting his eyes. What will you, what will you do all day without me around? I'll think of something. I have my books and my tea and an unpredictable magician who may decide to take up a new hobby while you're gone. He lifts a book from the table and settles into one of the chairs by the fire. As I leave, it occurs to me that I do know one thing about Aloysius. He is as lonely as I am. I'm thankful for the opportunity to escape Mago Ray's house for the afternoon, but I have no intention of spending it with strangers. Instead, I take a gondola down the Grand Canal to St. Mark's Square. It is unusually warm for late winter, the air is muggy and heavy with salt that clings to my skin and clothes. The smell of algae and waterweed stings my nose. A washerwoman empties a bucket out of a high window as, the gondola, as a, the gondola passes by, and dirty water splatters the gondola and my clothes.
The gondolier chuckles. Venice, jewel of the sea, he sings out. From the water we come to the water we return. I disembark at the Piazzetta di San Marco and press my back against one of the two great columns of the entrance to our city. On top of the pillar above me, the winged lion of St. Mark stands guard. Up ahead, the red brick Campanile, Campanile towers above the little piazza. I have listened to those bells ring the hours since I was a child. They're the sound of home. I can scarcely hear them from Ray's house. The square is a sea of black robes and gray pigeons, the brown vests of merchants and the colorful, colorful skirts of the procurator's wives. A flash of silver glides like a minnow through the dark robed waters. One of the Cellini. I pull up my hood and make my way in the opposite direction, weaving between the arched columns of the Doge's palace. I stick to the shadows, thankful that in these clothes I'm just one of the masses, invisible to the patricians. I follow the old familiar streets home as if pulled by an invisible line. I need to catch a glimpse of my beloved Olivia or Theodore walking by the canal. I need to make sure they're still safe, that the Cellini haven't hurt anyone else. Black banners hang from every window of the Carvati house, just like they did four years ago when Julia died. A tangle of broken furniture and rumpled fabrics rests against the wall. The back doors are flung open, as they usually are when deliveries are made. Peeking out from behind the nearest corner, I can see shadows moving inside the house. My mother, perhaps, directing where her newest purchase should go. What would she buy in the week following her daughter's death? I press my fingers into the stone wall to keep from running inside. Through an open window, I catch the faint strains of music. I think it's a violin at first because the sound is so clear and steady. But then I recognize my sister's voice. Olivia, thank God she's safe. She's singing something I've never heard before. A song so slow and sad that my throat seizes tight. If I could only glimpse her or any of them, I would be able to endure this. I dig my nails into the stone until my fingers throb and pray that one of them will look out of the window or walk out the back door. There is movement in the shadowy hallway, but the figure that emerges is not one of my loved ones. Only a merchant dusting off his apron, satisfied with whatever transaction he's completed. He walks past me, and I crouch near the ground like a beggar. Even this man ignores me. I press my hand to my mouth, trying to stifle the sorrow, but it slips through my fingers like the ash from a spell paper. I should be relieved, mother, 
wouldn't have invited a merchant inside if there was trouble. They are moving on with their lives. It's what I wanted. I take three shuddering breaths and stand up, determined to leave before anyone notices me. But something in the jumbled pile, pile of debris catches my eye. The metal lines are familiar, as is the domed top. And without thinking, I run forward and dig it out. It's my birdcage, Rella's home. Some of the cloth strips I shredded for her bed still cling to the metal wires. The sides are irreparably bent, as if someone has smashed them. A silver knob pokes out from underneath a Persian rug. My Persian rug, or what's left of it. Only charred pieces now. Carefully, I pull out a second birdcage, the one Theodore kept in his room. This one is unharmed. My heart squeezes tight like a washing rag. Where is Rella? Did she get caught in the fire somehow? No, I watched her fly off. She was safe. Why would Theodore throw these away? One second, kiddos. Okay, I'm back. Had to do something here real quick. No, I watched her fly off. She was safe. Why would Theodore throw these away? I tuck the intact cage under my arm and run back down the street and around the corner. Hands trembling, I hold open the cage door and whistle. Whistle. Sorry. Hands trembling, I hold open the cage door and whistle. It's a short call, two high notes and one long low one. Rella responded to that call every time. If she's an earshot, she'll come. I whistle again, louder this time, and look around, hoping to hear the familiar frantic beating of wings. Rella always flew as if it were her first time and she didn't trust that her body would stay airborne. Theodore and I used to laugh ourselves silly watching her navigate around the arched pillars of her courtyard. My throat aches and I have to swallow before I can whistle again. Theodore! My old nursemaid appears at one of the high windows. I press up against the wall, trembling. Theodore, are you out there? She calls again. I'm in the library, my brother shouts. Were you whistling? Of course not. He sounds tired. Pressed down with sadness. There's a pause. Leona? I can hear a desperate hope in her voice. Have you gone mad? Theodore shouts. I thought... Her voice fades as if she steps away from the window and I fear she might come outside to investigate. I turn and run. 
I wander the streets of San Marco, caring little about my destination. I should never have gone back home. How could I be so stupid as to whistle our special call with an earshot of, our, of the house? I let my curiosity overrule my common sense, and now I've upset my nursemaid. If anyone notices the missing birdcage, I may have put my entire family at risk. I am such a fool to think that I could take any part of my old life back. I am such a fool to think I could take any part of my old life back with me. The sun slowly sets, bathing the city in red and gold. Shadows lengthen over market stalls and statues of saints and lions. It's as if Phoebus himself is pulling a blanket of darkness over Venice. Shutters close on the great houses, and women call for children to come inside, safe from the raucous festivities that are about to begin. Tonight is the first night of carnival. Two weeks of dancing and feasting and revelries that I was never allowed to attend. My mother painted a grim portrait of the lascivious acts that happen after dark. Sometimes I would stand on my balcony and watch the gondolas sail by, packed with revelers and masks and gowns and glittering jewels. The cool night air would ring with rowdy laughter and wild shrieks, and I would strain my eyes to catch a glimpse of these infamous spectacles. Once a perfumed egg hit the side of my balcony, followed by a crooning, Signorina! And I ran inside, my cheeks burning. When I walk down Mandela Street, I see a circular window so like the one in Father's office that I stop to run my fingers along the iron grate. My eyes are blurring with exhaustion when this spell materializes. There's a gap the size of an egg in the fortification web just below the window. According to the map in the library, this is part of Ray's jurisdiction. I'll tell him tomorrow that should help secure my position as his assistant. Up ahead is a crowded bridge where ladies in black velvet and men with beaked leather masks lean far over the edge and drop roses in the passing gondolas. I stop for a moment to admire a juggler hurling countless balls into the air in a mesmerizing circle. I am comforted by the chaos around me. There are no Cellini out this late, and there are no familiar faces either. In truth, there are no faces at all, only masks and shadows and my own inexplicable longing to join them, to enjoy one anonymous night of happiness now that I am truly forgotten. Down another street, I see a stall advertising costumes for rent, which is all the encouragement I need. I slip through the canvas opening and bow to the old woman inside. I have a strange request, I say. That's the end of chapter 11.
chapter 12. One second, please. Need to do something here. Okay. Chapter 12. It's not the strangest request I've had, the old woman says. You'd be surprised how many people want to become someone else for a night. Her voice floats over the thin curtain to where I'm changing. I roll my clothes into a tight bundle and place them on the designated shelf next to my birdcage before picking up the costume. I should really charge for my sealed lips, too. She lets out a high laugh that ends in a snort. I step into the dark green dress, relishing the softness of the fabric, the familiar drape of petticoats around my legs. Oh, how I've missed my old clothing. Not the corsets and platform shoes, those I would happily part with forever. But I do love the way a good dress fits, and the shopkeeper guessed my measurements with a skilled eye. I turn in front of the mirror, admiring the elegant simplicity of the dress, the shallow swoop of the neckline, the slight narrowing at the waist, the subtle gold swirls in the skirt. Lace sleeves stretch down over the tops of my hands, hiding the crescent mark. When I step out from behind the curtain, the shopkeeper's eyes widen in surprise. Hmm, is all she says. She opens a pair of drawers behind her. You'll be wanting a mask too, I imagine. I selected a jeweled green half mask that covers my eyes and the ridge of my nose. The woman helps arrange my hair under a hood of ivory-colored silk so that it looks pinned away from my face, and then she steps back. We could give you a more exciting face if you'd like, dear, she says. I'm a magician at makeup. Black swirls around the ears stretch the smile up the face a bit. Diamond powder on the cheeks? No, no, thank you, I say hastily. I haven't missed wearing makeup. I'll be back in a few hours for my deposit. The woman shrugs. You may, or maybe you'll decide you like this disguise better than your last. I melt into the throng of revelers that sweeps like a river through the alleys. For a while, I am struck. I'm sorry. Let me restart that last sentence. For a while, I am stuck behind a slow-moving funeral procession. And although others shove past, I hesitate, not wishing to disrespect the dead. Masked mourners. Shrouded in black, wail and beat their chests. As the men holding the casket descend a flight of stairs, I catch a glimpse inside. A maiden, all in white, lies with hands clasped around her chest. 
Suddenly, the girl bolts upright, and I stifle a shriek. None of her mourners seem to notice her care, and after a moment she lets out a tragic sigh and lies back down. Only a mock funeral, another trick of carnival. I push my way past them. A nearby alley lined with lanterns and flower garlands is too tempting to ignore. At the end, a gated courtyard hums with music and laughter. The cheerful notes of a cello and spinet drift over laurel trees hung with lanterns. Candles line the balconies two or three stories above us. And cages full of singing birds hang from wires so thin they're invisible in the darkness. Cages floating in the sky. I pull open the courtyard gates and step into a scene from another world. A fairy tale like the ones painted in the miniature boxes I loved as a child. The ground is striped with red and white stones and strewn with roses. Masked dancers trample the flowers as they twirl, twirl around and around, and the smell of crushed petals fills the air. It's a mesmerizing spectacle of jewels and pearls and satin and feathers. Beside a fountain that flows with sparkling wine stand two boys holding plates of cured meats and chocolates. One of them is tall and thin and wears a bird's, a bird's beak mask. The other's mask covers only half his face, stopping above his high cheekbones. I think I recognize those freckles and reddish-brown hair, and when he grins at his friend, I'm certain of it. Mago Vittori's assistant directed that same easy smile at me this morning. I groan at the memory. What a sight I must have been, trussed up in spells on the floor. Two girls approach the boys and pull at them, giggling and pointing toward the dance. It's ridiculous, an embarrassment to our gender. Eventually, the boy with the bird's beak mask sets his drink down and follows one of the girls. Spurred on by the success of her friend, the other girl sways back and forth in front of Vituri's assistant, holding out her ring-laden hands. I'm surprised at how much I don't want him to give in. He shakes his head no, quite firmly, but I suspect it's his smile that keeps the girl from giving up. Her cherry lips form into a pout and she twirls away, off to find easier prey. Vituri's assistant is all alone, and in a moment of boldness, I decide to meet him. After all, we are both assistants now, and it's my chance to learn more about the Magician's Guild. I am wearing two layers of disguise, playing another part for the night, as the shopkeeper had said. Before I lose my courage, I walk over to the sparkling fountain, fountain and fill up a glass. He is watching me out of the corner of his eye. I turn and bob a curtsy. 
Good evening. He bows. Signorina. I don't think we've been introduced. Isn't that the point of carnival anonymity? Only if you have something to hide. I nod toward the girl with red lips. Or someone to hide from. The boy laughs. I'm sure she's already forgotten me. Found another partner who actually dances at these affairs. He considers me again, then bows again. I'm Nico. Olivia. Nico's face stretches into a broad smile. I have a sister named Olivia, he says. She's only 11. I'm sorry, she's only seven. Your parents have excellent taste in names, I say, which earns me another laugh. I'm busy thinking of something else that will make him laugh when a new song starts up slower and contemplative, one that my mother loves. She told me once that it reminds her of Florence, and when I hear it, I picture the sprawling golden city that I was never allowed to visit. The revelers dance the lure, and I sip the bubbling wine and observe a black-caped boy across the room. He's wearing the mask of death and lurking like a dark phantasm behind two ladies in exquisitely embroidered gowns. As they watch the dancing, he lowers his head between them. When his lips move, the ladies shriek and jump apart. One of them drops her wine, but the boy catches it before it hits the ground, hands it back to her, and then glides away. Nico lets out a sigh. He's watching the boy as well. A friend of yours? I ask. Most of the time. What's he saying to them? Oh, something ominous and vague, I'm sure. Enjoy that drink. It might be your last. Your secrets won't stay hidden much longer. Death is lurking at the door. Simon likes to upset the nobility. Don't we all, I say. Nico tilts his head to examine me. You're not one of them? I choose my words carefully. I'd rather not lie any more than I already have. I rented the dress and mask for the evening. Really? And what will your parents say when they see that much, that much coin missing? I look at him squarely. I paid for it with my own money. Nico's eyes are unreadable behind his dark mask. Uh, I meant no offense, he says. Then I accept your apology. I say and pop a truffle in my mouth to hide my smile. Nico laughs again. Well played. So, is it all that you hoped for? Not exactly. I look down at my green dress. A white rose petal was caught in one of the folds. 
Yeah, sorry about that. I had to stop for a second. Okay, I'm back. Uh, Nico laughs again. Well played. So is it all that you hope for? Not exactly. I look down at my green dress. A white rose petal is caught in one of the folds. At least, it isn't quite what I expected. I enjoy the anonymity, but I thought the disguise would make me forget my troubles. Troubles of your own making or another's? I laugh, but there's no cheer in it. His question reminds me of home in a long, cool autumn when my brothers and I studied the Odyssey. Ah, how shameless the way these mortals blame the gods, I say quietly. Yet they themselves, with their own reckless ways, compound their pains beyond their proper share. Nico finishes. There's that smile again. You know Homer. Only little. I hold up my glass. Do you know what the great poet... Do you know what the great poet has to say about wine? Tell me. It is the wine that leads men on. I quote, thoroughly enjoying the awestruck way he's watching me. The wild wine that... And then some part I don't remember about laughing like a fool. And it drives him to dancing. Nico sets down his drink and claps. Well done. Would you like to then? Like to what? I ask. He holds out his hand. Slightly too high, the gesture unpracticed. I thought you didn't dance, I say. I don't, he replies. So you should accept before I lose my courage. When I take his hand, his fingers tighten over mine, and together we slip into the swirling crowd amid the press of cloaks and swish of skirts. The dance is easy and familiar, a soothing pattern. Forward, back, spin, curtsy. Hands meeting, then pressing away. Circle the dancer beside you, eyes fixed on your partner. Marvel at the simple grace of dancing. Meet again in the middle, a careful brush of hands as light as bird wings. A heartbeat side by side, then step back. Turn away, circle around the others. More obstacles than people, until you find him again. I cannot tell if Nico is as lost in wonder as I am. Do the angels look down on us with envy on nights like this? Do they dance together as we do? Swaying to the music of the stars and planets? I cannot imagine how it could be any more glorious than this. When the dance is over, Nico leads me to a quieter part of the courtyard and a small bench draped in silks. When he sits down, I notice the white sliver of a scar along the top of his right hand. 
Where are you from? He asks. Near the arsenal, I say, which isn't entirely false. It's to protect my family, I remind myself. Nico leans forward eagerly. Really? Anywhere near San Martino? I have no idea where that is, so I respond cautiously. Near there, yes. My family lives just across the bridge. The D'Angelo's. Do you know them? My father is a rope maker. Of course I would pick his district. I don't think so. Nico's face falls, and I decide to steer the conversation away from his family before I make things worse. Are you an apprentice? No, I'm a magician's assistant. Which magician? Mago Vittori. He took me in when I was eight. Eight? That's so young. Nico smiles. I was tall for my age and desperate, which went a long way. I already had four younger siblings and my father. He traces the scar on his hand absentmindedly. He's better known for playing cards than rope making. You needed to earn money to help your family, I say. A magician's assistant makes more than double the wages of a rope maker's apprentice, and by the time I was eight, I was desperate to leave the docks to do something more than tie knots for the rest of my life. He laughs softly. I never say that out loud. It, it sounds so petty. The moon slides out from behind a dark cloud, washing us in silver. Wanting more than what you've been given isn't petty, I say. Nico tilts his head in thought. But it's a matter of how you go after it. You can wait for something and not get it and still be happy. Or you can want something so badly that it consumes you. He picks up a rose petal and runs his thumb over it. Not that it really matters what I want. I... He stops abruptly, his shoulders drawing in as if to conceal whatever secret he's carrying. You what? I ask quietly. And I need to stop here and save this segment and continue on another one because I'm almost out of time. So we'll pick up here in the next segment in the middle of chapter 12. So hold on one second. Okay, sorry, I'm back once again. He stops abruptly, his shoulders drawing in as if to conceal whatever secret he's carrying. You what? I ask quietly. I'll be going home soon. He hesitates, glancing at me. I suppose I can tell you, I'm losing the sight. I'm so sorry. The words sound empty. It's a particular, a particular cruelty in life 
that we get this gift for such a short time only to have it disappear when we're old enough to appreciate it. But it's not gone completely. It's fading. Sometimes the colors look the same or I'll miss a hole in a spell. I'm only 16. I should have more time. I wanted to give my family my wages for, a, for as long as possible. He watches the dancers for a moment. When he speaks, his voice is ragged. And I don't want to leave. At least you'd get to go back to your family, I'd say. He doesn't look at me. You wouldn't say that if you knew. I might have... Don't go back home then. Find another city and start over. That would be an exceptionally selfish move on my part, Nico replies. I'd be no better than the men who run this city if I looked out only for myself. I remember his face on the night of my birthday gala, his disdain for the pit patricians, for my family runs deep. That's unfair, I say. They aren't all selfish. Olivia, Nico lifts his head. You're clearly very smart. You should know better th than to say something so untrue. The words sting. My pulse leaps wildly against my skin as I fight the urge to prove him wrong. I could tell him my secret, or at least some of it, and then he would understand that I know what I'm saying. You can't risk being discovered, my mind protests. But the wine and the mask and the freckles, like faded stars on his face, are all convincing me to ignore it. I do know what I'm saying, Nico. From the bushes behind us, a voice growls. You will die before Good Friday. I scream and Nico jumps up, his fists ready for a fight. He drops them when he realizes who it is. Simon, you dock rat, come out of there, he says. The skull emerges first, grinning as if it's pleased with its work, followed by the black cape, now snagged with twigs and leaves. Was I interrupting something, he asks, then dissolves into a fit of laughter. Nico rubs at his hair, his lips twitching between embarrassment and irritation. How long were you back there? Simon scratches the skull's chin. I was following a cat, or a large squirrel maybe, with two tails. So fancy, I happened to see you, not a moment too soon. It was a seren serendipitiful. He breaks into another burst of laughter and nearly falls over. Nico holds him upright. Come on, let's find the others. I need to get you home before we're locked up for disturbing the peace, he says. I have to go too, I say. 
A breeze ripples through the courtyard, bringing with it the common sense I must have dropped somewhere back in the alley. I should be back at Mago, Mago Ray's house and safely in bed, not cavorting around Carnival with a boy I hardly know. What if he recognized me and told his master? Twice today I have been foolishly reckless, and it could have cost me everything. Wait. Nico puts out a hand to stop me, then pulls it back immediately to prop Simon up as he sags forward. What's your last name? I'd like to visit you when I'm back home. I shake my head, frustrated by the impossibility of the request and how very much I'd like him to. Goodbye, I say. Before he can protest, I turn and run down the alley, through the streets, and back to the stall where the old woman is sleeping, propped up in a chair. My clothes and birdcage are waiting right where I left them. The woman wakes long enough to return my deposit and point me toward St. Stephen's Square. From there, I can remember which alley will take me to the back entrance of Mago Ray's house. This time, I crawl to the door, dragging the birdcage behind me. The entrance isn't barred. If Mago Ray's reputation is not enough of a deterrent to thieves, the spellweb certainly is. I slip inside and move quietly through the house. Aloysius didn't tell me to be back at a certain time, but he also didn't tell me not to go into the room with the Oscuro. I'd rather not find out about the curfew because I missed it. As I walk past an open door, someone calls out from inside. Where did you sneak off to? I pause. It's Mago Ray, his voice slurred and surly. I'm too tired to get into an argument with him, but I doubt he'd tolerate being ignored either. I set down the birdcage and retrace my steps. It's a parlor, or it was back in the days when the house received guests. Now it's just a dusty room with dirty marble floors and two tattered chairs, a fireplace, and stacks of books. Not his precious books on magics, I, magic, I'd wager, since some of them have potted plants balancing on them. He's using one stack as a footrest. Aloysius gave me the afternoon off. Signor? Signor, there's a bottle of wine by his dangling left arm and no glass in sight. Mago Ray's eyes are heavy and dark. Aloysius likes you, he says, but I don't. I press my shoulder against the doorframe. Why not? You're keeping secrets. He says, everyone keeps secrets, even you. His eyes flutter closed briefly. Even Aloysius, I say. They snap back open. 
go to bed. He tosses the empty wine bottle into the fireplace. I turn to leave before remembering what I saw earlier. There's a gap in the fortification spell on Mandela Street, I say. The house hasn't started to sink yet, but it's a large hole. His eyebrows raise. Interesting. It's the closest thing he's given me to approval, but I'm too exhausted to care. I pick up the birdcage and stumble toward my room. Perhaps I should try to sneak into Ray's study tonight and hunt through the books. But I'm so tired that my arms are trembling, and I, I don't think I could read even one page without falling asleep. Instead, I collapse into bed, and when I sleep, I dreamed of checkered courtyards and moonlight dances. Chapter 13 Leo! Leo! My father stands beside the bed, arms folded, glaring down at me. Papa? My voice is raspy and sleep slurred. Pull it together, boy. My father replies and yanks the curtain away from the window. I blink the sleep from my eyes and stiffen. It isn't, father. Get up, Mago Ray says. He stands by the door and beckons with sharp flicks of his hand. Disappointment presses on my heart, followed closely by alarm. I pull the sheets up to my neck, but Mago Ray doesn't appear to have noticed anything. He does a little jig of impatience. Come on, he barks. We're going out. What? Why? I can't get dressed with him watching. He flashes me an irritated look. Isn't that what a magician's assistant does? With one finger, he jabs in the direction of the writing desk. I'd organized the clutter into neat piles a while back, but they've been leveled once again, decimated by a stack of clothes. Put those on. I can't be seen with you looking like that. His hand moves in an arc from my head to my feet as if everything is offensive. Then, to my relief, he sweeps out of the room like a departing storm cloud. I tiptoe across the room and shut the door. The trousers fit perfectly. I won't have to roll up my pant legs anymore, thank heavens. And with the white shirt and black leather jerkin, I look like a smaller version of Aloysius. I run my fingers along the smooth, crisp fabric. All my life I've taken for granted what a miraculous thing clean, well-made clothing is. Leo! Mago Ray's voice echoes down the corridor. I strap on my belt as I race after him. He takes the back alley and, and while I once again duck under the spells, Mago Reyes strides through them without hesitation. I glance up from my crawling in time to see the spells bend around him like water around a ship's prow, linking back together after he's passed. We cut across St. Stephen's Square. 
It's even earlier than I'd thought. A few ladies talked near the well, water buckets balanced on their hips, but the houses are shuttered. The square is silent, save for the distant cry of seagulls and the muted knock of gondolas against the docks. Where are we going? I ask. Mandela Street first, he says, to fix that gap. I have to take two small steps for every one of his. And then? Mago Vittori's house. Nico's house. Isn't it a bit early? I ask. Crushed rose petals in a quiet courtyard corner still linger in my mind. What if Nico recognizes me? This can't wait. Mandela Street winds through much of San Marco, jumping canals with short wooden bridges. Houses of seafoam green, marigold, and coral crowd on both sides like eavesdropping neighbors. I find the circular window that I admired last night, and I point to the place where the street meets the marble masonry. The wood pilings beneath the marble sway untethered in the water. Right there, I frown. It's bigger today. He crouches down and run, runs his finger along the stone. That is what rips do. Not when they're left alone, I say. Not overnight. Somebody... Commoners can't manipulate spells, he says over his shoulder. I wasn't talking about commoners. Mago Ray pulls a slip of paper from his robe. The Selene aren't allowed to use or tamper with magic in Venice, he says, as if it's that simple, as if saying it makes it true. Do you trust them not to break your rules? I didn't say it out loud because Mago Ray is chanting, but I'm curious whether magicians view the Selene differently than we do. After all, they were the ones who first caught them they were the ones who first caught them swimming in our harbor. They wrote the terms of the treaty and they hold the Selene to them. The Selene may be our guard dogs keeping enemy ships at bay, but the magicians hold the leash. At least they're supposed to. A gray-brown web floats up from the flame. Ray drops the burning paper and holds his hands out with palms facing each other as if he's conducting a symphony. The web bobs up and down gently between his fingers like a moored boat. He carefully lowers the web to the ground until it hovers over the hole. I watch in awe, holding my breath. This is why he's the best magician in Venice. He weaves the old and new spells together with the grace of a virtuoso, fingers curling elegantly. The street is hushed, as if even the buildings are impressed. How's it look? He asks at last, his voice tight with concentration. I exhale. Perfect. 
Every strand has found a mate, and the entire web glows with new energy. There is a low rumbling sound, and the wood pilings drift back into place. The building shifts upward, straightening slightly. Hmm. Ray stands and brushes dirt from his robes. Hmm, what? You weren't lying. He sounds disappointed. I choose to ignore the jab. One of us must act like an adult, and it seems that was a test. A test I passed. It's a pity you can't see the spells. It's incredible to watch, I say. Sometimes, he hesitates, I can feel the spell when it's first cast, like the warmth of the sun through glass. It's faint, but I sense its power. I let the warmth guide me as I work. His eyes are glowing, and I think he's forgotten whom he's speaking with. But then I smile, and his face closes abruptly. He turns, rubs his hair, and squints at something in the sky. Come on. He glances narrowly at me from the corner of his eyes. Good work, Leo. I duck my head to hide how pleased I am. I don't want him to to regret saying it. I can only imagine the effort it took to conjure a compliment from the dusty corridors of his soul. Rather than take a gondola, Ray insists we walk, even though our destination is all the way in the San Paulo district and my feet ache from last night. He claims it so I can look for more breaks in the fortification spells, but I think he likes the way people shrink away when he walks by. At the top of the Rialto Bridge, he comes to an abrupt halt. A plume of smoke rises from the direction of the arsenal. Not the orderly columns of a smelting chimney, but the angry, thick billows of a wildfire. What is that? I ask. Ray's jaw tightens. That is the reason we're going to Vittori's. Hurry up! The back entrance to Mago Vittori's house is in a narrow alley, squished between two yellow, dilapidated buildings. On the steps of the closest one, a little boy sits playing with a stuffed doll. As we pass him, I realize two things. First, that the doll is in fact a dead rat. And second, that the boy's legs are tucked under him in such an unnatural way that he clearly cannot walk. I reach into my pockets for the biscuit I smuggled from the library yesterday, only to remember that I'm wearing new clothes. I have no food or coins to give him. He doesn't look up as we pass on to Vittori's house, two doors down. Mago Ray tries to walk in, but the doors won't open. He gives an irritated snort and mutters something rude before rapping four times, stepping back, then knocking three more times. After a moment's pause, he slams both fists on the purple wood, 
bouncing up and down on his heels. It strikes me then that I have never seen Ray completely still, apart from the focused concentration of casting a spell. He's so different from Aloysius, who blends into the library furniture so well that I sometimes forget he's there. Remind you of home, Mago Ray's voice startles me out of my scrutiny. When I don't reply, he nods to the boy. I wish I could help him. Surely Mago Ray has a lira tucked away in those voluminous, voluminous robes. So many of them in this wretched city, he mutters. Where would we even start? I raise my eyebrows. Probably with the one right in front of you. Technically, he's in front of that house. Mago Ray sniffs the air, then knocks violently once more. And then, by proximity, Mago Vittori's house. Perhaps you can solicit a wafer from him. Is there a spell on this cursed door that's silencing my knocks? I'm relaxing my eyes to look when the steward opens the door. His eyes widen as Mago Ray brushes past him. Where is that ass of a, a magician, he calls over his shoulder. It is a small wonder that Mago Ray isn't embroiled in duels every day. Mago, wait, please, the steward hurries after him. I glance once more at the child before stepping inside. The hallway is cool and dark, illuminated by the illuminated by the pale light streaming in through four open doors. No mirrors or paintings adorn the walls, but the corridor is clean and well kept, a far cry from Ray's derelict mansion. I can tell they're in the very last room by the chaos that's erupted within. The steward's blustering apologies, Vittori's low, angry commands. I stifle a grin. Ray's whirlwind personality is more amusing when it's directed elsewhere. I'm halfway down the hall when the steward steps out of the room and storms past me. Tea before breakfast. Ridiculous, he mutters. Red splotches dot his cheekbones. As we pass, he grabs my arm and yanks me to a halt. The last assistant always warned us before your visits, he snaps. Margot Ray hasn't had an assistant since I protest, but he only gives my arm a violent shake and stomps off. The Tories' drawing room is a shocking spectacle compared to the house's modest exterior. Enormous rugs from Alexandria, Grecian busts, and an inordinate number of gilded candelabras. Gold-fringed tapestries line the walls. The Christ child in the temple. The wedding at Cana. The four evangelists. A painting of Mago Vittori himself hangs above the mantel, ringed in wooden shafts that emanate in all directions like the sun's rays. 
The two magicians sit in tufted chairs separated by a brass pedestal table. Nico stands behind Vittori, his hands clasped behind his back, shoulders square. Nothing like the laughing boy at the carnival ball. He glances at me as I enter, but he doesn't smile, and his attention quickly returns to his master. He doesn't recognize me, thankfully. That would be catastrophic. Although, I do think Olivia made enough of an impression on him that he might at least have paused, even briefly. Pay attention, Leona. I take up a matching position behind my magician, although I'm not entirely sure what we're doing. Ray and Vituri watch each other like dogs before a fight. The room is silent. Ray's fingers twitch in his lap. Magavatori scratches his silver beard. It's a calculated motion, a feint to show that he's at ease. Is he frightened of Mago Ray? It could be a different ship. It was Rossi's, Ray replies. My people say the Cellini punished him for a broken deal. Your people? Do you have spies all over Venice? Vittori glances around sharply. Are they watching my house right now? Ray flicks his hand contemptuously. What agreement did he break? I'm not at liberty to say. Oh, out with it, Ray snaps. You knew and did nothing. This conversation is having a strong effect on Nico. His mouth has thinned to a line as if he's trying to conceal his disgust. Just like on the night of my birthday party. I wasn't aware of the specific terms. Ray leans forward and stabs his finger on the tabletop with each word. But you should have been. Patricians make deals all the time. And it's our responsibility to keep them from making stupid ones that could destroy the city. Magavatori's eyes tighten. I was part of this guild when you were in swaddling clothes, Sebastian. Don't lecture me on responsibilities. Well, perhaps that's the problem, Ray snaps back. Vittori crosses his arms across his chest. What? You've let a lot of things slip recently. The Carvatis are under your watch too, aren't they? I gasp at the sound of my last name. My former name. I'm not a Carvati anymore. Mercifully, no one notices my distress. Nico is apparently too busy working through his own emotions, and the magicians are moments away from a fight. That arrangement was made twenty years ago. They used some cheap traveling magician to cast the spell, most likely because they knew I'd refuse. I wasn't informed until later. Mago Ray smirks. 
How convenient. What does that mean? Ray leans forward. His dark hair gleams in the candelabra light. Twice now, Cellini deals have slipped under your nose. It does make one wonder if there's something in it for you. A handful of saltwater pearls, perhaps? Vituri stands up so swiftly that he knocks his chair backward. Nico catches it easily and gives me a strange, concentrated look. I stare back, bewildered. How dare you, Vittori growls. Any time now, Nico says to me. Shut up, Ray tells him. His smile, fixed on Vittori, is as sharp as nails. Did you furnish this gaudy mess of a drawing room with Cellini treasure? Or buy Bianca new dresses? Enough. Get out of my house. I'll see you out, Nico says. Malga Vittori has more important matters to, to, to attend to than baseless accusations. Isn't it about time you lost the sight? Ray asks, rounding on Nico. Hopefully Vittori's next assistant will understand that if he sticks his self-righteous nose where it doesn't belong, he might lose it. Nico clenches his hands into fists. I can see how much it costs him not to respond. You are completely out of line, Signor, Vittori shouts. Storming in here uninvited, insulting my assistant, accusing me of treason. And you haven't denied my accusations, Mago Ray says softly. Vittori is breathing hard, his cheeks a red glow above his beard. I've had enough of your slander. We'll settle this on the field. Nico clears his throat and stares beseechingly at me. I pretend to take an interest in a nearby urn. I have no idea what he wants. Mago Ray jumps to his feet. Excellent! I was hoping you'd say that. He spins around and slaps me on the back so hard that I stagger. My assistant will make the arrangements. I blink, wondering if I misunderstood him. I'll what? Vittori goes very still. You were baiting me. Ray picks up a small statue of a sphinx and frowns at it. I had a few more insults up my sleeve in case those didn't do the trick. You just... you were... The poor man looks as if he's tasted something bitter. My assistant needs the practice. Ray tosses the sphinx in the air and catches it. And your assistant needs to be put in his place. Until then, Vittori. He walks toward the door just as the house steward arrives with a tray of pastries fresh from the oven. Tea is ready, Signor, the house steward says. Not in the mood. Mago Ray steps around the man. 
I'll see myself out. The house steward works through a number of unpleasant expressions before setting the tray down. Tea, he announces to no one in particular. Mago Vittori puts a hand over his eyes and makes a dismissive motion with the other. Leave it, he mutters. I need to lie down. The enraged steward silently departs, leaving the tray close enough to me that I can smell the sweet, yeasty breads. Vittori follows close behind, and I'm left alone with Nico. He is still standing at attention, staring vaguely off toward the wedding at Cana tapestry. As soon as his master leaves, he gestures at the empty chairs. Have a seat. I take the chair recently vacated by Mago Ray and clasp my hands in my lap. Exactly how a lady would sit. I hastily uncross my ankles and mimic the other boy's posture, trying to read the expression on his face. I'm lost on the social etiquette of this situation. If a magician is at odds with another musician? Magician, sorry. Let me restart that sentence. If a magician is at odds with another magician, does that put their assistants at odds? Should I be angry and aloof? I feel naked without a mask. Nico gives me a smile. That was exciting. I remember Benito's warning about my smile giving me away and don't return it. Do they usually fight like that? Not if Mago Ray's already insulted someone else that day. Uh, like he insulted me in the study yesterday. By the time Mago Vittori arrived, Ray was in excellent spirits thanks to my humiliation. Vittori's assistant leans across the table and extends his hand. I'm Nico. I've never shaken a man's hand before. I squeeze firmly, thankful for the hours of sweeping that have roughened up my palms and push away the memory of that dance, that hidden courtyard. Leo. Nico holds my gaze a moment too long. Or is it only my imagination? Then he sits back. Welcome to the world of music, magician's assistance, Leo. You'll have to come to the Lion and Spear sometime to meet the rest of us. Aloysius told me you go there often. Yes, there are so few of us. We stick together, like brothers. And a sister. I'd like that. I hesitate, and Nico waves a hand in the air. You can speak freely in front of me. Go on. You don't seem bothered by how rude Mago Ray was to you. Nico shrugs. I bring it on myself, but I can't help it, really. Someone needs to stand up to that egotistical maniac. Aren't you worried you'll lose your position? Ray has no control over other magicians' assistants, and Vittori likes it when I push back. I think he wishes he were brave enough to do the same.
Nico drums his fingers on the tabletop. Well then, what day should we plan for? Visiting the inn? Arranging the duel. When is your magician free? Oh, curse Ray for leaving me with absolutely no idea of what to do. I, well, that is, he's... I pause. What am I thinking? Ray has the social schedule of a housefly. He's very open. What about yours? Nico frowns. The Turi has meetings most of this week. But I know he'll want to settle this soon. How about tomorrow? Tomorrow? I was hoping for at least a week to learn the rest of the spells. Nico is watching me. Unless you need more time to prepare. There's a hint of a challenge in his question. No, tomorrow is perfect. I stand up so that he can't study me anymore. I'll let Ray know. Excellent. How about the Santa Croce Monastery? Mid-morning. All right. Good to meet you, Leo. I turn to leave, but the tray of food catches my eye. I think of the boy on the street, and the words tumble from my mouth. Could I take one of these? Nico looks up, surprised. I point to the closest pastry. There's a boy in the street. He seemed hungry. Something softens in Nico's face. The one with the lame legs. Yes. Take it. Our house steward is stingy, but I don't think he'll miss one. We'll have to look out. We have to look out for our own, don't we? I hope my imposterous face doesn't give me away. Yes, we do. Nico nods. You're lucky to have a place in the guild. Venice can be an unforgiving city. The lame boy is still outside when I leave. I set the pastry in his lap and hurry away. It was hardly anything, only a few bites, and I don't want to be there when he's finished. And that's the end of chapter 13. Okay, well, this has been an epic double or triple podcast, you guys. Wow. Um, I love you all very much. Can't wait to see you tomorrow. It is Tuesday morning. And uh, I get to see you all tomorrow. Super excited about that. I hope you have... Well, let's see. You're probably going to be listening to this Tuesday night. Well, I hope you have a great night. And I will see you tomorrow. I love you guys. Oh, Sonia Camille. We are in, on page 160. Let me do a little math here. 160 divided by 396 is 40 point four percent so we are just a little over 40 percent through this book ah we're doing good we are making some progress i don't know i'm starting to like this story i'm getting a feel for uh um christine's style 
and the kind of characters she likes. I don't know. It's neat reading different authors. The more authors we read, the kind of like, I think the easier it is, is to like understand their personalities maybe. I don't know. I think you can probably tell some things about the author after reading a book or two of theirs. I'm kind of in the back of my mind contrasting Cora and Leona. And it seems like there's some similarities there, huh? You just kind of feel like they are created by the same author. Like Cora and Leona could almost be like sisters. Anyways, just duck think about. All right. Love you, kiddos. See you soon. Bye-bye.